So is not the narrative of Balaam utterly fascinating? In planning out this sermon series, I was trying to figure out how long to make the series in the short version of the series where I was going to try and go through the whole book in a shorter period of time. I thought about doing the whole narrative of chapters 22 to 24 in one sermon, and my heart just wouldn't allow me to do it. <laughs> There's just so much good stuff here. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Chapter 22 itself certainly needed its own sermon. We have Balaam and his donkey, one of the greatest narratives in all of the Bible. The cast of characters is incredible. You got Balak, the cursed, crazy king of Moab at that time. He's that nervous little king, similar to Lord Farquaad in the movie Shrek, that minor character with the big head, right? And well, who is, he's a, he is just simply impetuous the whole time, and yet he's the reason that this account is happening. He's worried about the nation of Israel, even though Israel actually poses no threat for Moab. In fear, he picks a fight and makes the situation worse for himself. And indeed, in our world, we often see people who pick a fight with God and God's people out of fear, and they simply make the situation worse. We need not fear those who oppose God and who oppose God's people. God will conquer all his and our enemies in his perfect providence. And then you have Balaam, the mad money prophet, hired by Balak to speak prophetic words of cursing over Israel. However, he is unable to curse Israel because God is determined to bless Israel and keeps giving him messages of blessing. There are times when it seems then that Balaam is a good guy because he speaks these words of blessing. And yet all of scripture portrays him as a bad guy who uses pagan divination and sorcery and in greed continually seeks opportunity to curse God's people so that he can get paid for doing that. In our world, people are a mixture of good and bad. I know many unbelievers who are good spouses, parents, employees, citizens, people. I also know lots of believers who are arrogant, rude, shallow, hypocritical. We are all works in progress. Those who are truly redeemed will be sanctified by God who is more determined to bless us and bring us to glory than we are. God indeed will conquer us according to his perfect providence. And then he had Balaam's donkey, the only character who is consistently faithful and good and makes for a narrative that is both funny and deadly serious. God causes the donkey to see the angel of God in the road and causes the donkey to speak and rebuke Balaam so that it turns out the donkey is wise and Balaam is the donkey. <laughs> in our world, God makes the wise foolish and the foolish wise. The first chapter of First Corinthians highlights this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. If you want to make a difference in this world, 
be the donkey. God will conquer the wisdom of the world by his perfect providence. And that's just chapter 22. Then we saw chapter 23 last week in the first two oracles that Balaam unwittingly speaks. And this morning, we will hear the rest of the oracles. That we might truly hear God's word as God's word. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God of Revelation, speak to us again. Not by extra revelation that we so often speak where we seek for you to change the story but to speak by your word which you caused to come into being to be written down and that you have preserved over the millennia that we might have it for us today you've done that because it is your word we pray then that your Holy Spirit would come and bear witness to the reading and then the preaching of your word that we would receive it as your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, last week, when we looked at the first two oracles, we saw the threefold pattern that happened with those oracles. There was the offering, and then the oracle, and then the outrage. Balaam would tell Balak to make an expensive offering on seven altars in order to try and buy off God, much like we are tempted to do today, to try to earn God's favor with money or with works of some kind. But the good news of the gospel reminds us we cannot buy off God, but we don't need to because God has already been bought off. He's been purchased, the full redemption purchased by Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so after this offering, God caused Balaam to speak an oracle that was the opposite of what Balaam and Balak wanted to speak because that's how he was going to get paid. These oracles show that Israel was blessed by God and nothing can change that because God is unchangeable, all-powerful, and merciful. And the Apostle Paul calls the New Testament church of Jesus Christ the Israel of God. The church is the new Israel made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are citizens of different nationalities, but our true citizenship is in heaven. And we will receive all of God's intended blessings because of the person and work of Christ. And so after that offering and after that oracle would come the outrage from Balak. He hears God's word of blessing on Israel, and he's outraged because he's paying Balaam to speak curses against the people. But God is determined to bless his people. And so we really ought to watch our own heart and our own tongue in what it is we say about the church. We must certainly take no profit or pleasure in cursing God's people. Rather, let the message in our mouth be to speak God's word and to bless God's people. We have been purchased at such a price, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. And so that takes us to the end of chapter 23 and then into chapter 24. And the third oracle that sort of follows the same pattern of uh, an offering, an oracle, and then the outrage. But there's key differences to listen for in this. And the outrage is then followed by final oracles of exclamation. In order to hear the flow of all these oracles together, I'm going to read them as one together. Starting at the end of chapter 23... 
at verse 27, and then continuing through the next chapter. So listen to God's words simply pour forth. Then Balak said to Balaam, come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Balaam said, build the seven altars here, prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped, tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down, like a lioness who dares to rouse them. May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. Now I am going back to my people. But come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. And then he uttered his oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Then Balaam saw Amalek and uttered his oracle. Amalek was first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at last. Then he saw the Kenites and uttered his oracle. Your dwelling place is secure, your nest is set in a rock, yet you Kenites will be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. Then he uttered his oracle. Ah, who can live when God does this? Ships will come from the shores of Kittim. They will subdue Asher and Eber, but they too will come to ruin. Then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way. So this third oracle seems to follow the same pattern as the first two. Balaam uh, sets up another 
uh, place, or Balak takes Balaam to a different place with additional attempts to curse Israel by making these additional offerings. And so they've now made three times seven offerings. That perfect number, three and seven multiplied together. But after the offering is made, as recorded at the end of chapter 23, a change happens at the beginning of chapter 24. On the other two occasions, Balaam would step away from the offering and do his divination and sorcery methods in order to meet with God. But at the beginning of chapter 24, we read, now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. And when Balaam looked out and saw Israel in camp tribe by tribe, the spirit of God came upon him and he uttered his oracle. Now to say that the spirit of God came upon Balaam is not the same thing as when we read about the Holy Spirit filling the people at Pentecost in the book of Acts. Nor is this the same thing as when we read about the prophet Isaiah, of the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The spirit comes on Balaam here, but Balaam doesn't get saved. His heart is not strangely warmed. Balaam is not regenerate. Balaam does not repent and trust God. Spoiler alert, in the chapters ahead, we will read that Balaam continues to try and find new ways to curse and destroy Israel. But this turn of events, with the Spirit of God suddenly coming upon Balaam, we anticipate an important revelation is about to be uttered unwittingly by Balaam, and that's exactly what happens. The oracle itself begins by Balaam describing what he is unexpectedly experiencing. He says, this is the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty. Balaam's eyes are being opened to see what we as believers would long to see, and he doesn't. It's a profound description of the hardness of the heart, that a person can have this kind of spiritual experience and still be unrepentant. Isn't that like so many today? Includes, sadly, those who profess faith. They don't want to repent, but they do want to have spiritual experience. Don't want to be called to account, but want to have experiences that are therapeutic soothing so that they can feel that they are loved by God even while refusing to repent. Balaam's eyes are open but his heart remains closed. In the other oracles, he spoke of Israel's past and then present blessing, but here with eyes opened by the power of God, Balaam sees their future state of Israel's blessing. He sees a beautiful settlement in the promised land, comparing them to strong trees planted by streams of water. And that's an image that we get over and over in the scriptures. Trees that are strong because they're planted by streams of water and an endless supply to feed those trees. It's an image of blessing articulated in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And so Balaam sees this blessing for Israel. Balaam sees that they will one day have a great king and a great kingdom. The all-powerful God who brought them out of Egypt is the all-powerful God who will cause them to devour 
hostile nations. And he concludes the oracle by articulating the covenant promise made to Abraham. May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. And so what follows in verse 10 is more outrage from Balak. He says, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Indeed, not only has Balaam unwittingly blessed Israel three times, but in this last oracle, he has also cursed Moab. May those who curse you be cursed. And so with this outrage, these two characters, Balak and Balaam, have quite a spat. They came together both wanting the same thing. So they seem to be on the same side, but now they're at each other's throats. Like a couple of egotistical teammates blaming each other for their team's loss. Or arrogant politicians from the same party blaming each other for failures. And so Balak screams in verse 11, now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. And Balaam screams back, did I not tell the messengers you sent? I must say only what the Lord says. I am going back to my people. But before I do, let me tell you, let me just tell you this thing. Let me tell you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And so suddenly, Balaam goes right into a fourth oracle, not with an offering and all the others. He just goes right into a fourth oracle, and not of near future blessings, but of distant future blessings. Look at verse 17 again. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Do you see it? Do you see who Balaam is speaking of? This oracle is spoken around 1400 BC. It initially envisions a king who will come and destroy Moab, King David, who rules around 1000 BC. Indeed, King David will come 400 years later and shatter Moab's strength. But ultimately, this oracle envisions the one that Revelation 22.16 calls the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Balaam sees Jesus. Jesus is Christ, the curse crusher. Jesus does not simply crush the forehead of Moab. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, Satan. Christ, our king, destroys all his enemies. Balaam has just spoken the greatest blessing he could ever speak. He has spoken of the blessing of the Messiah. God's greatest promise to Israel is again revealed, the coming of Christ. Yes, the promised land is good, But far better is the promised Lord. He won't just crush Moab. He won't just conquer Edom and Seir. Christ will conquer all his enemies. Christ crushes sin and death. He crushes that curse infinitely and eternally. This gospel reality feeds the rest of the oracles that come in verse 20. It's really not just a fifth oracle, but rapid fire of a fifth, sixth, and seventh oracle. Again, that number seven of perfection. And for those who want to do some serious geek Bible study, 
like me. I'm into that kind of thing. You can spend months studying these final oracles because it concerns various nations and tracking them is the work of skilled historians. The Amalekites are the most well-known. Historians have found ancient inscriptions that suggest that the Amalekites consider themselves first among the nations. Perhaps that they thought of themselves as first in antiquity, but also first in quality, or both. King Saul and then King David both will defeat the Amalekites. And then ultimately, they are finally destroyed by King Hezekiah. And then there are various interpretations regarding the Kenites, but they too have been destroyed. And then some think that the final oracle about Asher and Eber may refer to Assyria and Mesopotamia and may predict the the, uh, conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century or Rome in the 1st century. Others think it may refer to battles involving the Philistines around 1200 BC and then King David's defeat of the Philistines. Either way, all of those nations have indeed been destroyed by the providence of God. Throughout the ages, nations and umpires rise and fall. And so our hope is not in the success of a nation or an empire. Our hope is in Christ and his eternal kingdom. The themes and imagery of warfare are throughout the scriptures. They raise the question about holy wars and why God called Israel to conquer other nations so violently. In short, sin is violent, and the conquering of sin is violent. The Old Testament themes and imagery of war vividly point to the violent battle which Jesus fought and won. The New Testament speaks of warfare, but it is a spiritual warfare. No longer is the church of God called to wage war with the former weapons, but to wage war with the ministry of the gospel in word and deed into every aspect of life and existence. Spiritual warfare is intense, and the warfare imagery is appropriate. It's not the only image in gospel ministry, perhaps not even the main image, but it is an important one. The scriptures say that we are, by the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to put on the full armor of God against the spiritual forces of evil. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. And so there is a battle, a battle that we are called to fight within our own selves, as well as a battle in this world. But because Christ has crushed the curse, there is victory, and the weapons have changed. Charles Wesley captured the nature of this battle in the hymn that we are about to sing. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength strength which God supplies through his eternal son. Strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus trusts is more than conqueror. Indeed, Christ is the curse crusher, and he will conquer every aspect of life and existence by his justice and his mercy. Therefore, we can go into all the world blessed to be a blessing. And may that truth set us free. Amen.